Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 15 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello there, hypnosis friends, and a warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a symphonic spectacular of a show lined up for you today. You regular listeners will have noticed that we had a week off last week. Yes, I know. Why call it Hypnosis Weekly? Why not call it Hypnosis Fortnightly? Well, sometimes things pan out that way. We'll do our best to remain as weekly as possible in the future, but may miss a week here and there for a variety of reasons, and we thank you for your patience. Now then, in a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with the hypnotherapist, lecturer, and good friend of mine, Steve Baxter. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Steve Baxter this week. I shall be exploring Steve's experiences and approaches in his therapy rooms, working with people, in particular musicians, who suffer from performance anxiety. And that discussion will be preceded by a small interview I'm delighted to share with you about performance anxiety that we managed to snatch some time with the one and only Rebecca Gilliver. She is principal cellist of the London Symphony Orchestra. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate where possible. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the Hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Steve Baxter to Hypnosis Weekly for a number of reasons. Firstly, Steve represents the field of hypnosis and hypnotherapy so well and his approach is so akin to my own that I asked him to come and lecture at my hypnosis training college. He is now a senior lecturer. I was also best man at Steve's wedding. Now, I mention this because our friendship was born entirely out of the field of hypnosis. We met through this field. We developed a friendship as well as a working relationship. And it's something I'm incredibly proud of and something that makes me very happy indeed. Steve and I often discuss his work and he has done some and achieved some great results working with musicians suffering from performance anxiety in particular. And that's a subject we'll look at in some more depth later on. For now though, get comfy my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea and enjoy this week's interview.
So, as I've just been discussing, I'm delighted to have with me today my good friend and superb hypnotherapist, Mr. Steve Baxter. Welcome to Hypnosis Weekly, Steve. Morning, Adam. Now then, um, tell us, tell us a little bit about your background then, um, um, how you've arrived at where you are now, um, um, how did you get into this field, what's your background? Uh, well, I spent a, a, a long time in IT, um, it's kind of started when I was at school. I wasn't a, a, a naturally um, a person who's, who responded well to school. Uh, I mean, I wasn't a rebel or anything like that. I just uh, educationally, um, I think it, when it came to careers advice, they were thinking more, you no, know, check out Tesco's than where I actually end up, ended up. Yeah. And I was lucky because my father, who was a, a electrical engineer, bought home uh, a very early uh, computer training kit. And I found that uh, I, I enjoyed doing the exercise in this kit, and I learned a lot about it. And actually, I think I, at the end, I, I knew more about it than my father. Yeah. And, and from that developed this idea that I'd found something I was good at, which was you know computers, IT, and I became, I like to think of myself as one of the original computer geeks. Yeah. So this is back in the days before you know, people had home computers and you know, smartphones and things like that, where computers were things that sat in big rooms. Um, and uh, I was there at the start, you know, when people like uh, you know, Clive Sinclair was starting with his range of computers yeah. and the computers made in the breeze. And it kind of led me into IT. Yeah. And I went on and I did a degree in IT and I went to work for a number of organisations and you know, I became eventually a, 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 an IT manager. And that's when I started to get being introduced to psychology. Mm. And um, the organisation I worked for, which was the, the Brewers Whitbread, sent us all on this course called kind of personal skills, um, which was a basic counselling course, but also taught us some bits and pieces about psychology. Up at that point, I, I was sceptical about psychology. You know, I was of the opinion that people who, had, who went to need to see a counsellor, you know, were probably wasting their time. And I had no idea of... It's from ignorance, really, and that kind of introduced me. And on that course, I had a couple of powerful experiences, and I wanted to know more, and I wanted to know what was going on. And that's led to me um, getting interested in personal development. Yeah. Um, and I would, uh, I used to drive a lot because there are these breweries around the country. I used to spend a lot of time in my car, and I'd have uh, cassettes. I'm showing my age now. Uh, with <laughs> likes of you know the seven habits of highly successful people, or, yeah, or, or um, uh, Dennis Waitley, uh, yeah. and um, eventually I, I bought this uh, massive tape set from a guy, this American guru who I didn't particularly like because he was a bit big and brash and American, <laughs> and um, he uh, called Anthony Robbins, yeah, and it's the first time I come across him, and I started listening to these tapes and. Actually, you know, once I got over my, my, my kind of prejudice against him, um, I thought his stuff was great. Yeah. And uh, at that time, I, I just started my own company, and I was running this company with a friend of mine. And uh, I'd done this course, I hadn't really thought, and I'd enjoyed it. And my friend said to me, you know, what's happened to you? And I sort of didn't really understand. He said, no, you... You've, you're you're more focused. You're more positive. You're more enthusiastic. You know, you kind of got an attitude of you know 
let's set some goals, let's do this, let's do that. Any obstacle is there to be overcome. You know, well, what's changed? So I explained about this course. Yeah. Uh, not realising I should change at all. So I explained about this course and um, thought nothing of it. A couple of weeks later, he walked in with two tickets to one of Tony Robbins' seminars. Yeah. Uh, I went to the seminar, uh, loved it, um, and um, then became a volunteer. You know, one, one of the crew for, for Tony Robbins. Yeah. And I, for, for over a period of about four or five years, um, I was helping all out in his um, seminars. Yeah. Which was, I guess, was my first experience of hypnosis, or, or, or as they call it on the seminars, closed eye sessions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and you no, know, through a, a, a long I mean, so the, the truth is, you no, know, getting to where I am today, being a hypnotherapist, probably yeah. took about twenty years. So well, right. I wasn't exactly quick at this. You know, from the, originally getting interested in personal development yes. to you know completing my diploma and setting up my therapy room was a long route. Yeah, but I mean that's um, um, I think that, that that very often this makes for some of the better therapists. I mean, I mean and. Not not all the time, but sometimes the fact that people have had, um, uh, uh, you know, lots of life history and life experience to draw upon, often enhances and enhances their ability to become a good quality therapist. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and you know, in my late twenties, I briefly had a period where I suffered from um, um, depression and yeah. hadn't been on the introduced to psychology and been in this course. Um, I, I literally you know, didn't understand really what was happening to me and I picked up the yellow pages and I um, went to the psychology section and I picked out the psychologists that had the most numbered letters after a name. Yeah. Um, who, 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 who ironically was a, a psychologist called Margaret Erickson. Ah. And I went to see her and she very quickly in about three weeks uh, I, I, I was back to my own you know, old cheerful self. Yeah. The stuff I, I learned in those three weeks, uh, if I met people who know me today, I think, you know, if they had the thought I was suffering from depression, would be very surprised. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a very cheerful, positive, um, philosophical guy. And I think it's due to the things I learned in that three weeks. Um, and in fact, I, I learned so much that I, I booked some more sessions with her to go back and because I wanted to find out what she did. Yeah. Uh, and then that kind of started me on the, on the road to therapy. But yeah, so, so I agree with your point completely. You know, when you've had life experiences, so people come to see me for you no know, depression, I, I kind of know what it's like to be on the other side of the fence. Mm. And I know the things that work for me and may possibly work for them that help me get after that. Yeah, yeah. And so um, um, within that, within the development, then, um, um, and and you know, over the years, where where you've got to the stage where you're a hypnotherapist, um, when people ask you about hypnosis, or perhaps you know, how to how, tell us a little bit about how you explain what hypnosis is to your clients, um, um, how you define it, if you have a, a, a succinct definition, and um, um, how you arrive at this definition, uh, you know, how you've uh, how you've got there. I think um, regular listeners. Will know that um, um, your your own definition actually may have been cited prior to today, um, but tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, so, so my definition uh, of hypnosis, and this is how I explain it to you know, my clients on, on the first session. I say all that hypnosis is is allowing yourself to become 
engaged and immersed in your imagination. Mm. So I say, you know, hypnotherapy largely is about us doing imagination exercises together. Uh, and the best way to be a good hypnotic subject is to forget about the hypnosis mm. and just focus on allowing yourself to become absorbed by you know, the, the instructions of the therapist. Or you know, if they're doing self-hypnosis, allow just allow themselves to be absorbed in the exercise they're following, and forget about the, the, the hypnosis element. Yeah, um, I say that, that success is just about them be, allowing themselves to be focused. You know, making allowances for the fact that it's very rare for people to sit down and just engage their imagination, and the mind is naturally going to, you know, to offer distractions. So yeah. expect that, and just bring your attention back to the exercise. Yeah. And that's, you know, they're completely in control. In fact, you, know, you could argue that they're in, mentally they're in more control than in their, in their normal state. And that um, if you frame hypnosis in that way, yeah. you're actually covertly getting rid of a, a, a number of possible worries or objections to hypnosis. Because people worry about the aspect of control. So as soon as you say, well, actually, you're just engaging your imagination and you're completely in control, then that's gone. Yeah. They worry about being good at it. Uh, no, will I be able to do this properly? Am I doing it properly? Uh, you know, which the, the trance model, if people think they have to go into this strange state called trance, then if their experience doesn't match that, that can be a problem. Yeah. And, and by ignoring the, the idea of trance completely, then... That, that that potential issue has gone away. Yeah. And they know that to do it right, all they have to do is you know, follow the instructions and engage their imagination. Yeah. So actually, I think it's a very concise and simple... Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. It really appeals to me. I think the idea of trance as well, you know, trance in inverted commas, it's, um, um, it's very difficult to be sort of finite about that, you know, I think. Um, um, it's... It's it's so open to interpretation and likewise open to misinterpretation, um, and, and people sort of attach all sorts of different types of phenomenological facets of their experience and think that that's somehow proof of hypnotic trance. Um, I mean, it could be it could be a, a bit misleading. Um, that that makes a lot of sense, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, so, so how has that been influenced, Steve? Um, you know, tell us about some of your some of your influences within um, um, within that, and how you've arrived at. And if there are any books and authors that have uh, influenced you, um, and that have been the most influential upon you, and perhaps you can give us a little bit of a uh, an understanding as to the reasons why. Yes, I mean, uh, and I'd like to start by. Um maybe backstepping slightly into how I arrived at that definition of, of hypnosis, because that yeah. feels some of the, the key influences. Yeah. Um, I, I originally trained, um, well, my first formal training uh, was in NLP. So I did an NLP practitioner course uh, with an organisation called JS International, uh, yeah. a couple of Sally and Yan, who um, to this day, um, although I've kind of moved away from NLP, I still highly rated the standard of their training. Yeah. Um, and they were, I came out of that course being you know, a convert to NLP and the Ericksonian view of hypnosis. Yeah. Uh, so I was into uh, trance and therapy generally being about having a conversation with your 
unconscious mind. Right. Uh, and I loved it. I loved the language. I love. I, 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 I like things that require skill. I like developing skill. And I can remember, you know, on a daily basis, I would be there reading my and rehearsing my Ericksonian language pack, pack, patterns mm. uh, a bit more eloquently than I did just then. Uh, and um, I really enjoyed that. And for me, one of the two of the big influences on my definition of hypnosis, first of all, was yourself and the training course I went on, which started to question uh, things like the unconscious mind. And, and the need for trance uh, and the need for um, uh, indirect hypnosis patterns, language patterns. Uh, and I have to say, it, 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 it took me a long time. I, I, I sometimes joke that the model of the unconscious mind still has my fingerprints embedded <laughs> from where I refuse to let go of it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Considering those ideas, it just opened my eyes to other possibilities, and I started to say, "Well, no, what is the evidence?" Of this? And I, I'd say it literally took me three or four years, I think, before I got to that model of hypnosis that I'm happy with. Yes. The other key people who influenced me was a very practical, and this was really the last nail in in, in the coffin of the kind of Exonia approach, um, which was um, at the Change Phenomena concert, uh, uh, conference. Yeah. With guys from Head Hacking, uh, Anthony Jacqueline and Kev Sheldry. Yeah. And uh, Marcus Lewis did a demonstration of what they call the automatic imagination model. Yeah. Which is you know, getting somebody engaged in their imagination very quickly and demonstrating a hypnotic phenomena. And they were literally, he was going to people in the audience and saying, Can you imagine being stuck in your chair? Are you doing that now? Good. Now imagine that's happening automatically, there's nothing you do about it. And sure enough, that person would then try to get up and could not. And there was no induction, no trance, no no covert language, none of those old things I loved were used, and yet this person's on that and get out of that chair. Yeah. And that really was okay. Uh, and from that point, in therapy, I adopted this new style of hypnosis. I always, already, always had this kind of get out card. Um, which was, you know, if, some, if I was working with a client and I felt the need to go back to the old star, it was always there. But in practice, I found that this new approach to hypnosis was so affected, I never need to do that. And indeed, I now look upon my you know, once-loved Ericksonian model as being limited. Yeah. That this model about it just being about your engagement, your imagination, teaching your client skills yeah it's so much easier it's so much more flexible and i think more powerful yeah 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 oh, that, that, that that's lovely lovely for me to hear um because it really sits in line with a lot of which uh, a lot of the ways in which i work and and the approach to which i have um, um so speaking of which then within your experience and over the years um um Tell us about um, some of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed. Is there something that stands out, something that you've you know, borne witness to yourself as far as um, how hypnosis has been applied and used? Well, the, 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 the one that I think that really comes to mind immediately, I think, which I think has been covered by your you know, previous um, interviewees, is the application of pain. Yeah. Um, I mean, even my friend, you no, know, uh, Martin S. Taylor, who's a, a well-known stage hypnotist, who uses a um, uh, hypnotism 
with our hypnosis model, uh, which is kind of it fits in very nicely with my beliefs about therapeutic hypnosis. He says no to me once that he could all, almost not believe that hypnosis uh, is real, other than its effect on pain, that yeah. you can turn pain off for people. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I would have to go back to that experience that changed phenomena for me. That would, because it was so significant at the time, it happened for me, and it just pushed me over the edge of that shift. I think the most, and, and that's probably the simplest thing, uh, impressive application, was being able to talk to someone, have them imagine them something, and their mind make it true for them in, in a matter of seconds. Yeah. I, that, is, that is impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was there at the conference that you referred to earlier as well, um, um, when, when Marcus Lewis was doing uh, that particular um, demonstration, and it was really impressive. It was really good to see. Um, um, now, if you could go back to when you first started out um, as a hypnotherapist or a hypnosis professional, um, knowing what you know now and having embarked upon the journey that you know now, is there anything you'd do differently? Is there any advice the, the person you are today would give to the younger you? And uh, would you extend that advice to hypnotherapists of today? Uh, okay. I, I think talking as a hypnotherapist, yeah. Um, something I've come to recognize and appreciate, uh, and I think is true for every client I've ever seen, is that every client I've seen, in some way, in a lot of ways, is amazing. Yeah. I, I've, I've never ceased to be surprised by, if I, I give them ideas, I talk to them about their issue and how it's working, I talk to them about strategies for solving it, and so often I'm amazed about how they take that information and they run with it. So I think my, my key advice to that younger me would be that, that therapy needs to involve both minds. And that isn't about the therapist in some way fixing the client or just about the therapist educating the client, but it needs to be a collaborative process because the client can and probably needs to bring so much to, to, to the, their, their final solution. And also, it means that when they walk out of my therapy room after the last session, having seen uh, the change or be well on the way to having that change, that they did that. And I helped them, I coached them, but they did that. Yeah. I think that's a very empowering feeling for them to have. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, tell, me, um, tell me about your thoughts, um, you know, I think we've got a, a good sense of that so far. What are your thoughts about the evidence-based approaches to hypnosis then? Um, well, I said, when I was originally thinking about this interview, and I, and I did know that the question was coming about, about the advice, is in the field of hypnotherapy, and, and I think in life generally, there's a lot of ideas out there. Yeah, and there's lots of opinions. I know some ideas are good, some I think are less so. And I think evidence gives you a, a very good way of differentiating what is more likely to be true or not. And, and one bit of advice of which I was going to offer to the younger myself is always be prepared to ask the question when presented with an idea, which is, "How do you know?" Yeah. Uh, and. and Maybe that would have meant that it wouldn't have taken me four years to work out what I thought hypnotherapy was. Now, when people say, no, you need to have a conversation with your unconscious mind, you know, well, well, how do you know? And yeah. what's the evidence? And if you get answers like, 
well, you know, I just know. Or, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I, I, that's how I know. I, I think that's very weak. If somebody can say to you, well, we did this study and we compared the effect of this thing with a similar thing and we noticed that there is a significant, a, a clinically significant difference, then when you're translating that into something you're doing with the client, when the client comes with presenting problems, you can say, well, we're going to go for this approach here because there is evidence to say that this will work. It has been tested. And I think just being able to say that, uh, it's going to increase the belief, I mean, not the belief of the therapist, but also of the client. So this isn't just my pet idea. You come to know this hypnotherapist um, therapy room, probably not knowing much about hypnotherapy, probably maybe thinking hypnotherapy is a bit you know, alternative and uh, this hypnotherapy is going to be some weird stuff. And here's this guy saying, well, there's been clinical trials on this. We have scientific evidence which says, um, you know, in some cases, like uh, for habit reversal is a good one, the efficacy rates are enormous for that, and you can quote them. Uh, and I, generally, I, I think having evidence means you can make better decisions. When a client comes in, because all our clients are unique individuals, and they, client, they come in you know, as experts at how they're doing their problem. And you have to take that and decide what therapeutic approach you're going to use. And I think you know, it's almost a no-brainer, is you will go for the approaches that are supported by evidence. In, you know, I'm not anti, uh, I'd like to say, I'm not, not anti things like NLP, which is somewhat lacking in evidence. I'm not anti anything that doesn't have evidence. I am pro things that do. Right. Yeah. Being that uh, I've turned into an evidence-based Nazi, I, I, I'm always open to considering other ideas. I've been looking at things like EMDR, for example, recently. Um, and always open to new ideas, but I will always say, okay, you know, there's the idea. What is the evidence? Where's the, where's the support to say that this actually works? Um, and, and, and I'll look for that. Great. Great. Um, um, now, Steve, tell us, where can people go to learn more about your work and your approach to hypnosis? Uh, well, they can go um, mainly to my website, which is steve-baxter.co.uk, or, or you can simply Google me, Steve Baxter Hypnotherapy, and uh, hopefully I'll pop up, or yeah. I'll sack my website designer. <laughs> um, and also, you know, uh, as of course you know, I'm a, a senior tutor with the Anglo-European College of Therapeutic Hypnosis, and uh, having, having trained there many years ago, um, I think that the, the, the school um, fits in perfectly with my ideas and my approach to the therapy. Great, great, great. There will be permanent links to uh, all of those sites that Steve mentions there under today's episode. Um, we'll be back with Steve uh, with our professional discussion in a short while. For now, though, Steve, thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview. Now, let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. Um, the first story this week is entitled Bill Murray used hypnosis to treat cat allergy. 
Um, now, the headline tends to tell you exactly what this story is about. And so I'm not really going to talk about what the content of the story is. Um, um, however, you know, actor Bill Murray uh, um, um, openly states that he used hypnosis to overcome his allergy to cats so that he could share certain scenes with a cat in his film, uh, St. Vincent. And um, I'm, I'm in it, he plays a hermit who spends most of the time with his pet cat. And um, I'm so, so he took this measure um, of treating the allergy using hypnosis. And the reason that I wanted to highlight this story is not just because uh, it was a famous person, but because of this application. This is a really impressive application. Um, um, Bill Murray told Ellen DeGeneres in an interview on her talk show that, um, um, that, that he'd read that someplace that allergies were psychosomatic and you could actually hypnotise yourself and overcome the allergy. And uh, many people believe that this is the truth, that actually an allergy is your body you know, responding in a mistaken fashion. It's making a mistake. It, it believes that something that isn't life-threatening is potentially life-threatening and responds in this rather severe term, uh, this rather allergic fashion. Um, um, and so it's a really nice, really nice for me and, and, and ought to be really good for other hypnosis professionals to see hypnosis being used in this relatively complex and comprehensive way, you know, um, because an allergy is, is, is a very real thing that it doesn't usually get associated with the field of hypnosis. At least it doesn't get the sort of headlines for that kind of application. Really good story, that one. Second of all, um, this week, the story entitled Hypnosis Therapy Can Affect Childhood Asthma. Now, um, I'm, I'm, I liked the story, um, I'm, and, and, and the main reason for my my enjoyment of this particular story was, was that within, within my own PhD literature review, when I was looking at paediatric applications of self-hypnosis, asthma was, was one of the applications of self-hypnosis that fared incredibly well um, under randomised controlled trial um, testing. And so um, I wanted to share this story. And um, the author, Dr. Patrick Massey, just simply states that over the past 30 years of medical research, that yes, um, um, the mind can have an effect on the severity of childhood asthma. And um, 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 hypnosis in particular can have an effect on the severity of it and, and thus help um, potentially alleviate the need for medication. Um, and, and the beauty of this, you know, one of, the, one of the real things that we've got to support our field as a, a treatment in some of these circumstances and with some of these applications is that, of course, hypnosis has no significant side effects. And um, that makes it preferential, um, um, certainly in my, my opinion, and I would say in the vast majority of people's opinions. Um, so good story, interesting story, that one. Um, finally, I was just going to round up. This week, I, 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 I myself became embroiled in a wide number of um, reading of articles that were stimulated amongst comedians. Comedians um, uh, all sort of discussing... Uh, p particular political parties here in the UK and there's a lot of bickering and it was quite interesting to see um, um, and, and what I found so interesting was the similarity between the way in which factions of comedians almost sort of um, um, put themselves together 
in the same way that certain factions of the hypnosis field do. And uh, it just so happened that, that, that in amongst these discussions and this reading and the approaches that I was looking at, that was sort of stimulated by a particular comedian suggesting that panel shows weren't representing the best comedians and, um, and, and people were sort of bickering to and fro. That's not really the point of my discussion today. The, in, a, in the midst of all of this, a stand-up comedian by the name of, Le, um, a lady by the name of Helen Lederer, um, and she's been a comedian for 30 years and has starred in some of my favourite TV shows, um, certainly stuff from the 80s alongside people like Rick Mail, Ben Elton, Harry Enfield. Um, um, she was in The Young Ones, for example, and Naked Video, and, um, and, and really enjoyed that. And she's experienced and used um, hypnosis and hypnotherapy in the past when she was um, uh, uh, on a reality TV show, but is considering and is going to use hypnosis and hypnotherapy before her upcoming tour with regards to um, stand-up. And that is that, you know, she she thinks the worst and she said um, her time as a stand-up was was terrifying and that she'd torture herself um, um, with an overwhelming fear of fluffing the act or messing up with her jokes and again I think you know um, um, it, it shows how this sort of mental rehearsal, this sort of negative auto-hypnosis type of process can really affect us when we're in performance. And I thought that was really relevant to the things that we're discussing in today's um, um, Hypnosis Weekly within the professional discussion. So I do have a read of that story. Um, links to all of those stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up then, we have this week's professional discussion. Steve Baxter has worked extensively with a particular group of people, and that is musicians suffering with performance anxiety. I was fascinated in Steve's approach. Prior to that, however, we're going to precede our discussion with a brief interview conducted with Rebecca Gilliver to help us frame and set the tone for our subsequent professional discussion today. Rebecca is principal cellist for the London Symphony Orchestra. She's performed on the world's greatest stages. Heck, she sat alongside Mr Bean during the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games here in London. She has played solos in films such as Thor, where she played the solo in the closing credits, and also played when Dobby died in the Harry Potter films. Ah, as well as many more, of course. Um, I wanted to find out a bit more about what performance anxiety is and how it affects musicians. So we'll have that, and then we'll move on to the professional discussion thereafter. <music> So, as I've just been discussing, I'm back now with uh, Steve Baxter, but also we're joined by Rebecca Gilliver. She is the principal cellist at the London Symphony Orchestra, and I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca. Rebecca, welcome. Thank you. Now, um, um, first of all, for anybody that's not familiar with what we're talking about here, can you perhaps explain to us a little bit about phenomenological side of performance anxiety. So that is, what, 
what actually happens? What, what symptoms are there? How does it um, manifest itself as far as your performance is concerned and as far as um, um, anybody that, 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 that suffers from performance anxiety is concerned? Well, there are several aspects to it. Um, the first, I would say, is, is purely physical. As a string player, um, the thing I'm most concerned about when I get nervous is my bow shaking on the string. Yeah. That I will either not be able to get the bow on the string or once I get it on the string, it might tremble. Yes. And that, that's very obvious to anyone listening and it affects the sound, obviously. So that's the, the first thing as a, string, as a string player. Yeah. And then you also have um, cold hands or sweaty hands. Um, you might forget to count so that you don't know where to come in. You might be worried that you're going to forget the notes. In fact, that happened to me recently. I was um, playing a concerto, which is not something I do so frequently. And I was so worried about forgetting one bit that I actually had that piece of music on stage, which bizarrely put me off. Right, um, yes. So, um, so, so, so very much like um, some actors fear mm. forgetting their words, uh, forgetting the notes that you're due to play um, um, is, 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 is similar. Yes, I mean, it doesn't happen in an orchestra or a chamber music performance because then you have the music in front of you and that's yeah, one fear yeah. that's taken away, yeah. um, which is always a relief. But yes, yeah, that's yeah. certainly when you're playing a solo, especially the older you get, the more that becomes an issue. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, there's, uh, there's, uh, your stomach feels like it's contracting and your heart races and um, you get short of breath, all the typical fear reactions, sort of physical symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Now, now knowing, um, knowing a, a, a modicum of information about cello playing, because, you know, I, I, I played up to about grade one, I think, um, um, as, as a boy. Um, um, having played up to that, that extremely high standard, I'm also aware then that if your breathing is affected, you know, and, and your balance is affected and so on, um, um, that, then, then these things can have a physiological impact upon upon performance, can they? Yes, I mean, I think if you're not breathing well, it becomes difficult, your rhythm becomes affected and everything just physically seizes up a bit as well. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, what, what, what about some of the sort of larger scale effects and impact that this can have? Um, so, for example, does this sort of, sort of impact upon someone's career then in turn? Yes, I think it, it does, in fact. Um, it can particularly impact on your enjoyment of your career. Right, if, yes. If you're consistently anxious for each performance, then you're just not looking forward to what is the culmination of many rehearsals and hours of practice. So there's, you know, there seems to me to be little point in, in doing it if you get, if you get terribly nervous. Um, yeah. And if, as a performer, you regularly mess things up because you're so nervous, yes, people won't want to won't want to work with you, won't want to book you. Mm, quite. That, that can happen. And, uh, I mean, off the top of your head, is this, is this quite prevalent, this, this kind of issue, this kind of um, performance anxiety? Is it, is it quite prevalent or is it, is it quite a rare individual that, that sadly suffers? Um, I think to have extreme stage fright is quite rare. Um, we're talking about sort of levels of stage fright here. I'd be surprised if there was a single performer on any stage who hasn't had some kind of stage fright and I just quietly accepted myself that one day I'll start to play a solo in the orchestra and my bow will shake. I mean luckily it hasn't happened to, to a large extent yet but I'm sure one day I'll start and it'll just sound like a sort of jelly or something. <laughs> but um, maybe having that in mind is part of what helps me cope with my nerves. Um, 
everybody, I think, suffers from some nerve. And in fact, it's, it gives you an edge. Yes. That, that's part of it, is that the, um, the, the stage fright gives you the ability to pull out more in a concert than you do in a rehearsal. Yeah. So there's also a positive side of, of being scared. But, but well, when it gets too much, when it gets too much is when it's, when it's a problem um, that people might start seeking solutions, for example, um, and looking how to deal with that. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier is really interesting to me. You said that, um, um, you know, that, that if you've got nerves in your hands or, and it can be detected um, by the way that you are bowing, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, perhaps music aficionados would, would be able to tell a lot more readily but um, certainly a lot more readily than, than I for example mm-hmm. but um, um, what about what about the you know uh, playing in an orchestra you know this is a real team event a closely knit um, mm. um, group of people what, what is the reaction to to, to, to to someone having having performance anxiety what's the reaction of of the other members of the orchestra around because obviously they're going to have keen ears and be able to tell and see and mm. uh, and so on. I think generally you just politely ignore it. If your desk partner is is having trouble, you just pretend not to see. And that's partly in self defence as well because I do believe that uh, stage fright is is infectious in a way. Yeah. If, if the person next to you is is struggling, then you may begin to think, oh gosh, I'm nervous too. And it, you know, it can actually transmit from one player to another, which is uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I think it's it's just politely ignored. I would say. Right. Okay. Okay. So so it's not a case of um, ever getting in trouble um, um, for for playing a certain way, or it's not sort of then then demanded that you'd have to go and and do something about it. Um, I think if it got to a certain level and it was affecting your performance within an orchestra, yes, you would eventually. It, it would come up in an official manner, but it would have to be pretty severe, I think, because yeah. people understand you do get nervous, you do get over it, you do deal with it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that's that's marvelous, marvelous. Thank you very much. Um, um, what's going to happen with um, um, with with today's Hypnosis Weekly is that. With this sort of entree, if you will, um, we're going to uh, come and discuss this a bit further, uh, myself and Steve Baxter now, but really wanted to get things into a particular context and get some insight from uh, uh, Rebecca, who obviously has has the insight that myself and Steve do not have. Um, Rebecca, thank you very much indeed for being part of today's Hypnosis Weekly. Thank you. I thought that was really useful and my thanks to Rebecca for that. With all of that information in mind and with that insight, let's now go straight into this week's professional discussion on the same topic with Steve Baxter. I think you'll find this week's discussion very insightful with lots of very useful and practical information to use in your professional work if you are a therapist. I'm back now with Steve Baxter and we're going to be talking about performance anxiety, in particular looking at performance anxiety within musicians. And um, you know, following on from our brief discussion with Rebecca Gilliver, um, Steve, first of all, tell me a little bit, you know, what is performance anxiety? So I guess the first point I would like to uh, make about performance anxiety is, it, is it's not just about people who have to stand on a stage. 
It's also about people who have to act, you know, stand in front of a room and people on teach or give a presentation. Uh, it's also somebody who has to sit in a meeting you know, and be able to offer their opinion. Yeah. It, it, and also somebody who's sitting in an exam hall. So I regard that as a, a, a kind of performance. It's anywhere where people are exposed to a situation where they have to do something requiring skill that is going to be in some way judged. Like, um, like, like, like even like a sports person. So, yeah. you know, a, a golfer that needs a steady hand to, to hold a crucial putt. That's right. And they, they suffer from the, from the yips. Yeah. Which is very similar to, I think Rebecca talked about bow shakes, which is where you, know, you, you lose some muscle control and uh, they find that they're unable to putt. Yeah. In some situations, uh, you know, I've worked with uh, sportsmen who've been in a situation like that and been, um, become cataleptic and unable to move. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, which is so, so uh, some of these symptoms that you're mentioning here, and and some of the symptoms then that you know Rebecca mentioned, for example, um, you know, tell me a little bit about your approach and tell me a little bit about how you work with that. Um, what my approach is kind of it's largely about educating the client, right? Uh, and that starts with you know, what, what is this thing, anxiety, mm-hmm. and saying that. In its place, anxiety is uh, you know, helpful and, and possibly essential for our survival. It's a message. It's a message to say that you need to pay attention. You need to take care because there's some perceived threat here. Um, and uh, what's what's happening with them is that that message has either been been uh, raised inappropriately, or it's it's distorted. It's exaggerated. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, you'll then explain that to your client. Yeah, and, and and also make the point that anxiety itself is a message, but it's not a solution. Getting anxious about a situation is unhelpful. And getting to start to think that it's kind of slightly odd that when you become anxious, your brain and your body shuts down to a bit. Yeah. I mean, if you're anxious about heights, how helpful is it if you're in a high place and your muscles start to shake? Yeah. If you're doing a performance on the stage, how helpful it is you know, if your hands get clammy and you can't hold the bow or you start to get the bow shakes effect. It's actually, you know, it becomes counterproductive. And mm-hmm. that's really the essence of where I think a, a, a therapy is helpful, is where your experience of anxiety, because people get naturally anxious. And as Rebecca said, it can be an edge. You know, if you weren't anxious about a performance, maybe you wouldn't prepare as well. So... It, 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 the point to which you should consider coming to a therapist about it is if it's affecting the quality of your performance or if it's affecting your enjoyment of producing that, employment, uh, that, that performance. Right, right. And um, 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 with, with that in mind then, having, having educated clients and kind of, um, um, uh, does that involve sort of conceptualising their problem and, and explaining that to them, you know, how it works, how it happens and so on? Yes, I, I, and I do this in quite a, a, an unusual way, I think, for, for therapists, which is, um, I mean, first of all, I, I, div- I kind of divide the problem into two um, areas. I divide it into the, 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 the emotion of the anxiety and I also point out 
the things their brain is doing, they become anxious. Yeah. Somebody who's very anxious about a performance is you know, in, in, in the backstage thinking, oh my God, I don't think I've practiced enough. This is going to be a disaster. I don't want to go on. I've got to get out of here. Those kind of irrational thoughts. Catastrophizing. Catastrophizing, exaggerating, you know, playing down the, the, the level of their skill, playing down how much they've practiced and rehearsed for this performance. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I, I say these two things are fueling each other. Focusing on the anxiety. And by the way, with all these discussions about that anxiety, what I'm also doing covertly is having them talk about this anxiety almost as if it's something separate to them. In particular, I want them to come to the idea that the anxiety is something that they are doing rather than something that happens to them and yeah. certainly not something that's part of them. And by ha and, uh, having these discussions with them, you're kind of pushing it away from them, Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and... One of the things I do, first of all, I talk about the automatic uh, myth, I think. The, the, the feeling that this thing happens to them automatically and there's nothing you can do about it. So they're not passive. They're not a passive recipient to the issue. That's right. And there is a, there's a model in, um, from CBT, uh, an ABC model, uh, which you have A, which is the, 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 the stimulus, the activating event, the, 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 the cause, the trigger of anxiety. Yeah. And then you have the C, which is the consequence, which is the feeling, uh, the, the, the thoughts you have associated with anxiety. And their view is in that situation, oh, I'm about to do this performance, then my stomach starts to churn, my palms will get sweaty, my muscles will break, and my brain will start to have thoughts of, I can't cope, I've got to get out of here. Yeah. And actually, there's a B between A and C, which is a belief. Yeah. And I say that all your focus has been on this experience of the anxiety, but actually, that's not the problem. The problem is this unconscious belief you have, that belief that says, in that situation, the way your mind and your body should react is to get anxious. Yeah. So, you need to kind of stop looking at the anxiety and start looking at that belief. So they started off thinking that A, the activating event caused the consequences yes. and you're educating them and conceptualising their problem to say, well, actually, it's A plus B, these, these beliefs and your, your attitude towards it. Um, and, and one of the things that I find so beautiful about that is the fact that, you know, you, know, you can't really control the antecedent, the, the, the activating event. You can't really, you know, be in control of that. But you can absolutely be in control of the belief and the, the, the kind of cognition that, that fuels your reaction and your response, thus leading us to ideally a different kind of consequence or a, uh, um, a different kind of outcome. Um, and, and at the same time, equipping, and as you've been talking about, educating the client, that actually a lot of this is very much in their control. Yes, absolutely. And of course, the, the immediate question is, okay, I'm, I, I accept this idea, there's a belief there. How do we work that belief? And at this point... I yeah, it just, it just happens. It just yeah, happens. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, this is the under-usual bit, I stick their hands to the leg. So <laughs> using hypnosis, in fact, using the model I talked about uh, in the interview, this automatic imagination model, I, I do some gentle suggestibility tests. Having pre-framed this with a, a conversation to you know, educate them about what hypnosis is, and then I say, well, we're not going to do some hypnosis now. We're just going to do little 
exercise to demonstrate the power of imagination and belief. And I would do a couple of suggestibility tests and ending up with, I have them you know, put their hand on the leg and say, now, I want you to imagine that hand is stuck. Can you do that? And they say, no, yes, okay. And you and I both know that you can move that hand if you wish at any time. But just this exercise, just imagine and believe that it's stuck. Dismiss any other possibility other than that hand being stuck. And it doesn't matter if the hand is stuck because you imagine it's glued, or if you imagine that all the muscles in your arm have just become so relaxed it won't work. All that matters is you believe completely that that hand is stuck, you cannot lift it. And I guess get them to say when they think they've got that belief, and then I go with the, now imagine it's happening automatically, there's nothing you can do about it, and try and lift your hand. Yeah. And most of the time they can't. Some people know immediately that their brain goes, well, of course I can lift it, and, and the belief has gone. So I have to do a little bit more work for them. But for probably about 80% of people, that hand was stuck. And that is quite a profound experience for somebody who's not come, you know, has no experience of hypnosis, that they've just stuck their hand to their leg using their mind. Yeah. Now, now it sounds a bit like a trick, and it does need careful framing, but there is a very serious purpose to this within the context of anxiety. Good. But I say, you no, know, look what you did there. You accepted a belief that you know is not true. But because you accepted it, and the belief that you thought it should happen, and it should happen automatically, your brain made it true for you. Isn't Brilliant. that just like your anxiety? Yeah. And then in that moment, they, they realise that all the times when they're having anticipatory anxiety, they're worrying about their performance, what they're actually doing is they're hypnotising themselves. Mm -hmm. At this point, I've explained that this is actually hypnosis. They've been hypnotising themselves, they've been imagining going off that performance and they imagine not only that they're going to be nervous but it's going to happen and mm -hmm. it's automatic and it's going to be out of their control and so it is because that's the way they believe it they create that belief so they now understand how they've created that belief and they now understand how they break it lovely lovely i mean, I mean that's um, um that, that that's really good to hear that is um um, so what about um, um, what about some of the some of the sort of affects then some of the some of these direct physiological symptoms? Um, you know, do, do you give people tools to deal with those? Um, 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 you know, or, or really is it just at these early stages? Is it primarily that you're looking at and you're examining? Um, you know the, the the level of education and understanding, or do you do anything to to lower symptoms directly straight away? Um, yes, well, I use a systematic desensitisation, which right. is using their, it, it's exposing them to the thing they fear. Yeah. Which, you know, immediately you might think, oh, that sounds a bit, you know, you're going to frighten your client here. So it has to be done in a very controlled and a very comfortable way. So we do it in their imagination. And we yeah. do it where they are in complete control. So this again, my, my, my whole ethos about therapy is not about me think, doing things to the client. So I train the client, I explain the philosophy behind systematic desensitization, which is about imaginal exposure whilst remaining relaxed. Yeah. Because as you your your mind get used to being exposed to that situation, only you know, if only in your imagination and being relaxed, you're retraining your mind. You're damaging that belief to turning it into a belief that in that situation, 
I can be relaxed. Yeah. And also, you know, being in that situation, being relaxed, starts to become the new normal. So I teach them that, and we do that in the, um, the therapy. I think we do it over two sessions, that, that particular technique. And in between, I have them go away and practice it on nightly. And they will come back and they will normally report, you know, the progress, the things they've noticed have changed for them, which is great. Yeah. Um, but a particular tool I use, which is a kind of, uh, what do you do in the moment? If they're going for performance and anxiety, you know, maybe the anxiety has lessened, yet yeah. it's still there, what do they do? And I use um, uh, Beck's AWARE model. Right. Which is a nice little acronym, um, which, you know, the, the, it basically says the A is accept the anxiety as normal, yeah. as, as usual. It, it, it's almost in a kind of flippant, if you're, if you're waiting for the performance and you start to get the butterflies in your tummy, it's kind of, oh, there it is. You know, the, the, there's my anxiety. The W of aware means watch from a distance. So this is a an ability and something that I specifically work on with clients using a, a technique called mindfulness is the ability to kind of sit back mentally and observe what you're doing. Yeah. So this is a great opportunity because I mentioned before I talk about the, the, the unhelpful cognitions, the thoughts going in people's heads, the thoughts of escape, the thoughts of being no good, the thoughts of disaster. And you can sit back and notice those things and just become a bit of a, an, an impartial observer mm. without needing to engage them. Mm. The A of the aware is act as if you're not anxious. Now, as best you can is the caveat here. Yeah. It's kind of pretend you're not anxious. So if you are the person, say, you know, who's doing the presentation, uh, then you have to walk out. And, you know, walk out as if you are confident. You know, stand tall. Make eye contact with the, the your your audience rather than kind of looking at the, at the ground. Uh, and, and, and do your best not to allow that anxiety to affect your performance. Yeah. And the, the R and the E are simply... Repeat this at every opportunity. Yeah. And there's a side note to that which is very important, which is if you suffer from any kind of anxiety, don't seek to avoid that anxiety. Mm. Uh, don't, you may need what we might call coping uh, strategies to be able to cope with those situations. Avoiding anxiety and employing coping strategy means that you are imagining the anxiety and then avoiding it. It means that you are uh, hypnotizing yourself. You're mentally rehearsing being anxious and you're not having the real world experience in full, which says actually it wasn't that bad, or you're, you're developing the ability to cope, developing you know, emotional muscle in able to be able to focus that, focus that anxiety which will eventually lead to its extinguishment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and the, the E, the E I use in this process, but nowadays I, I, I often say this for whatever kind of therapy, because I think it sets a great expectation. It's very simple, expect gradual progress. Yeah. And yeah. I'll often say, you know, expect things to get better, but maybe you have the odd blip, you know, a day where you're tired, um, or you know, there's some other factors going on 
something else is going on in life and mentally, maybe emotionally, maybe, you know, physically, you're not on par and you might find things a bit more difficult simply because of that, not because you've had a setback, just because you're having a bad day. So kind of expect those as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I love about the aware process and equipping people with the aware um, is that it gives them a very ready tool to make sure that there is no negative reinforcement. Um, for those people listening, you know, negative reinforcement is um, whereby someone has avoided or escaped the, the target situation. You know, they've, they've made their excuses, they've left. And um, they've often left, you know, at, at, at an early sign of the anxiety occurring. The anxiety is becoming unmanageable. They're starting to catastrophize or whatever the situation might be. And they escape. And because when they do escape or if they avoid the situation, it makes them feel better. They're then rewarding themselves with a the negative behavior. So by avoiding or by escaping, they've rewarded themselves. And then it's thusly negatively reinforced. They've they've sort of reinforced this this process of avoiding or escaping whereas um with with the aware protocol that steve's just described beautifully um you're giving someone a skill to stay there you know as soon as there is a a, a sign of some symptoms of anxiety they're, they're able to, 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 to equip themselves with this and follow this protocol in order that the symptoms can abate and they stay there in that situation. And exactly as Steve said, you know, they begin to develop an emotional muscle to, 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 be, to being resilient in that circumstance, which I, which I really rather like. Um, um, so thanks for sharing that, Steve. Tell us. So, I mean, I, I actually have, a, from my dim and distance uh, past, a, a great um, example of this, and quite, quite amusing one. When I was a, a teenager and young adult, I was quite a, a shy uh, and sort of lacking in social confidence uh, person. And uh, I, I went to university, uh, and my grant was such that I, I had to get some part-time work. And I ended up working at a bingo hall. Yes, and uh, <laughs> the bingo hall. A, a lot of the people who worked there, who were were actually you know Sri Lankan, and and spoke with a particular accent. So when one of the main callers there um, uh, left, they approached me and asked me if I'd like to be a caller. And my immediate reaction was, you know, are you stupid? Do you, do you not know me? I mean, uh, I, 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 if I was walking into a room full of people and the door was shut. I would have great difficulty in opening that door because I, I, no, when you open the door, you, then everybody looks at you kind of thing. I, that kind of level of anxiety. And you want me to stand up in front of, you know, between I think, 300 and 2,000 people and run a session. Yeah. And they say, yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and by the way, you, your salary will triple if you do this. So, so I had a good motivation there. And sure enough, I, I found myself, you know, wearing a, a, a DJ going up with my microphone in hand in my first session with the, the, the other callers there to coach me uh, and running the session, and it was fine. And within a, a matter of, I think, a month, I, I can recall this experience. I was standing up in a session, and I think there was about 500 people in this session, and I was calling the numbers, and I had my cup of tea in my other hand. And, you know, I, I was just, you know, which was not very professional, but I, I was just, I was, very, I was completely in control. I was completely relaxed. 
absolutely no sign of anxiety. And I actually found you know, through other areas of my life, I became a lot more confident simply from having faced that fear of standing in front of all those people, which is you know, a bit going into the deep end. And it has such a profound effect to me, not in just in that particular issue of you know, being a bingo caller, but being more socially confident, uh, being more confident generally. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, with what I would, you know, when Rebecca was speaking earlier, um, um, you know, she, she was also talking about um, the fact that this can go on and start to affect, you know, their career in, you know, a, a, a musician's career. But I'm guessing this could also happen to to anybody that's experiencing a lot of performance anxiety in a wide variety of the examples that we gave um, at the at the start of this discussion today. Um, um, you know, would you therefore, you know, work on things like self-efficacy and confidence in their ability in order that, you know, it doesn't work its way into lots of other areas of life um, and that it doesn't, you know, impact the career in general terms, you know, over and beyond the, the sort of real life uh, phenomenological side of performance anxiety? Uh, yes, I do. Um, when I, I, I fully accept your point um, about the, 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 how it affects their career, uh, I have some incredibly talented people uh, who are um, you know, classical musicians, performers, um, no, in, in tears in, my, in the first session of the therapy room because they say that they've been suffering performance anxiety for maybe 10, 15 years. And they, they just can't cope that anymore. They love being a musician. They love playing, but they can't cope. And, and they're scared. And they don't know what to do. And unfortunately, you know, the, the perception of hypnotherapy is such that quite often they will say, you know, I didn't know what to do, else to do, so I thought I'd try hypnotherapy. So I'm thinking, yeah. there's a voice in the back of my head, which I'll keep quiet, saying, oh, thanks, you know. <laughs> yeah. but, um, and... You know, it's heartbreaking to see that, to see somebody with so much talent being affected in that way. And yes, it's kind of almost covertly, because I'm teaching these skills, I'm teaching them the true nature of their anxiety, and their anxiety stops being something that can control them. Yeah. Uh, and I think that does translate into other areas of their life. But kind of, I'm not sure I do anything specifically about confidence in other areas, because they tend to be reasonably confident people in, in some area at least. And it's really taking those skills in the other areas, understanding that this, this anxiety is something they're creating. And as soon as that's gone, then the, the confidence comes, comes back. It, yeah. It's an interesting point to make actually, you know, in, since we're focusing on professional musicians, something that surprised me very early on is I imagine that somebody you know, performing in front of an audience, say at the Barbican, where I think they have about 3,000 people, in the audience. Uh, no, that's be scary, but I think with every professional musician I've worked with, it's not the audience they're concerned about, it's their colleagues, it's the people sitting next to them that they want to impress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting then, because, I mean, you know, I, I asked Rebecca about that and about the recognition, um, or, 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 you know, the, 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 the other members of an orchestra, for example, recognising and being aware of mistakes being made, perhaps where somebody like myself, an untrained ear, might not recognise. Um, um, 
And so, you know, do you find with your work, you know, because you, you, you've worked with a lot of people for this particular issue, do you find that there is um, a stigma attached to this um, or that, you know, people are less less likely to want to work with um, with professionals as a result? Yes, it is. You know, it's kind of the, the, the elephant on the stage. If you have somebody who is uh, suffering from anxiety and, and you, you, it's clear from their playing that they are, then nothing will be said. Mm. Um, it's kind of, I mean, Rebecca said that it's some, some of it is because you don't want to be in some way infected by the anxiety, you don't want to focus on it, so you want to block it out to protect your own playing. But it's also, I don't think people in the industry really know how to cope and how to deal with anxiety. Which kind of leads back to my point of people coming to see me, you know, that, that they're trying hypnotherapy as the last, you know, last chance. Having been to the doctor, you know, some of them were on you know, beta blockers and other anti-anxiety drugs. And when those don't work, then they try hypnotherapy. But there's kind of a, a feeling that maybe they can't talk about it because they don't really know what to do about it. And there's an element of feeling sorry, not being able to offer advice for their colleague. So the, the easy option is just not to talk about it. The, the, the stigma is so important. Something I do emphasize is the, the I think it's really important, is the confidentiality. So yeah, if, yeah. A, if a musician or anybody, anybody comes to see me, you know, within you know, some sensible guidelines, the only person who ever knows is them and myself. Steve, where we're at with time, um, um, we'll, we'll call it a day there, but thank you ever so much. I really appreciate that. There's, there's um, stacks of information for anybody there uh, looking to work with uh, performance anxiety. Thanks very much, Steve Baxter. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion this week. Lots of useful information there. A link to Steve's website is there at the Hypnosis Weekly website under this particular edition. On to this week's Hypnosis Fact of the Week. Now, despite the impression given in stage and TV shows, as well as Hollywood depictions of hypnosis, spontaneous amnesia is actually relatively rare in hypnosis. And this is the conclusion drawn by a study by Simon and Salzberg in 1985 that has been replicated. And it talks about the, the unwanted occurrence of spontaneous amnesia can actually be prevented by simply informing clients or hypnotic subjects that they will actually be able to remember everything that they are comfortable remembering about the session. Simple as that. If you want a reminder of our ongoing competition, do go and listen to either episode 8 or 9 of Hypnosis Weekly and keep tuned for me using that special word, if I didn't use it today, that is. In our next edition, I'll be welcoming the one and the only Mr. Alex Lenke. This is the man who used hypnosis instead of anesthesia for some of the most invasive surgical operations, including ankle replacement surgery. The media is awash with stories and reports of his feats using hypnosis. I'll be interviewing him and we'll be discussing much. I have many more exciting guests here in future weeks. In particular, we shall be welcoming some very impressive academics and scholars to Hypnosis Weekly too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. 
And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with the related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website, and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Twitter, Facebook and anywhere else to really help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks go to my amazing friend Steve Baxter. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you Rebecca Gilliver for joining us. My name is Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.